0: Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Hello and welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 99. If you tuned in last week, and I hope you did, you got to meet Dr. Jennifer Schneider, Jenny is the president of Livongo, and she explained how keeping users at the center of your solutions can help accelerate your business and your impact by helping people improve their health. If you haven't heard that already, please go back and download it. You can find it on your favorite podcast app or just skip back one on the website. If you want to go there directly, just head to digitalhealthtoday.com 98. Now, it's great to hear what a company like Livongo can do when there are conditions that are affecting millions and billions of people around the world. But what if you're not one of a million others with the same or similar diagnosis? What if you're one of a much smaller population of people with your condition? And what if your diagnosis is one of the 7,000 diseases classed as rare diseases? Fully 95% of those 7,000 rare diseases have no FDA approved treatment. There were some advances that were made through the Orphan Drug Act to improve the number of treatments available. But the fact remains that biopharmaceutical companies rarely consider repurposing existing therapies, ones that have already been approved, to treat rare diseases. Why is that? It comes down to incentives. There really is very little incentive for them to do it. To learn more about what can be done and to share his personal story, I spoke with Dr. David Fajenbaum. David is a physician, a scientist, patient, author, speaker, husband, father, and more, including karaoke singer, which I found out when I met David during JPM week in January. He's also a pioneer in changing the way we go about developing drugs to treat people with rare diseases. And in doing so, he's managed to put his own condition into remission and help many others as well. David has a really powerful story and he's on a mission, but frankly, this cause needs much more support. I want to ask you for your support in helping David and thousands of others be victorious over their rare diseases. And now, how can you do that? There are several ways, and we put together a variety of resources in the show notes, including a link to a PDF that has a lot more information. Please grab the link to that in the show notes on your favorite podcast player. And if that doesn't work on your phone or operating system for some reason, then please go grab them directly from the website at digitalhealthtoday.com 99. You can also find that on our second home at Health Podcast Network by going to healthpodcastnetwork.com. Now, in that PDF, you'll find links to learn more about the OPEN Act, which is a bill that needs to be voted on by the U.S. Congress. David and I discussed that in the program. The OPEN Act is bipartisan legislation supported by 268 patient organizations, including Genetic Alliance, Global Genes, National MPS Society, National Organization for Rare Disorders, and the Pediatric Cancer Foundation. It passed the House in July 2015, but it was not signed into law, largely because of the political stigma associated with anything that could be perceived as benefiting Big Pharma, when in fact this is really needed to help thousands of people. In the PDF, you'll find links to learn more about the Open Act, as well as links on how to find your senators and representatives, and I encourage you to call them and write to them to encourage them to vote on and pass the Open Act. Another way you can help is by raising awareness of this. The last day of February each year is Rare Disease Day, and this year, being a leap year, it's on February 29th. We'll be helping to spread the word of the importance of finding treatments for rare diseases, and I'm also sure that this is something that could benefit from higher awareness in the mainstream media. If you're listening and you can help connect David with big names that can help raise awareness, people like Oprah Winfrey, Ellen, Michelle Obama, and others, please get in touch directly with David or with me, and let's get him connected. Okay, that's enough for me. Now, let's tune into the conversation with Dr. David Fajenbaum. Hey, David, thanks very much for joining me. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. I really want to get into the meat of our discussion today, but the first thing I'd like to cover is a little bit about your story and your experience. And of course, everyone can read all the details in the book that you wrote, which is called Chasing My Cure, which really describes your journey from being a medical student to fighting for your life. So can you just set the stage for us here and tell us a little bit about your experience?
1: Sure. So I went from being this healthy third-year medical student, training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom who had passed away just a few years before, to experiencing multi-organ failure out of nowhere. I gained 70 pounds of fluid, a retinal hemorrhage made me blind in my left eye. I was so sick that I actually, a priest came in and administered my last rites to me because the doctors didn't think I would survive. But thankfully, about 11 weeks into this journey, I was a eventually diagnosed with idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, which is a rare and deadly disorder where the immune system attacks and shuts down the body's vital organs. About 5,000 patients are diagnosed each year in the U.S. with Castleman disease. And for my subtype, about a third of us will die within five years of diagnosis. And with this diagnosis came treatment. So thankfully, I received chemotherapy that saved my life just in time. Unfortunately, I would go on to have many, many relapses.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I saw it on the talk that you did at JPM. I also watched the video that we'll have the link to at Exponential Medicine. But what did you have, like five different relapses?
1: That's right. Five times I went from being totally healthy to in the intensive care unit on dialysis, daily blood transfusions, really kind of as sick as you can possibly be. It was just absolutely
0: frightening. I mean, that that must have been terrifying for you and the people who care about you. I know you and your father are very close. One of the relapses actually occurred just shortly before your wedding, right? That's exactly right. And we didn't know if I was going to make it to my wedding.
1: I mean, with each of these deadly relapses, it was, as you said, it was frightening, especially for my family to see what was happening to them and for them to see what was happening to me, you know, despite them being the most difficult experiences of my life. I actually was able to try to find some positives and some lessons within the tough times. But at the time, uh, it certainly didn't feel like there were any positives that were going to come from them.
0: Well, I've got your book here, and it's a great book. I have to admit, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I'm through a good part of it, about a quarter of it. And I've looked through all of the photographs that you have here, <laughs> the before and after, the reverse before and after. <laughs> you know, you've got the picture of you when you're very, very healthy playing college football at Georgetown. You're a quarterback, right? That's right. Yeah. So very healthy playing that you have a top athlete there and then also being very, very unwell, being confused for a pregnant person at some stage, right? That's right, I I had to try to find some humor in the midst of the tough
1: times. You're exactly right, I was, I had such a big belly because my liver and kidneys weren't working that in one of my hospitalizations, a drunk man on New Year's Eve actually thought that I was my dad's pregnant wife, which was definitely a low point emotionally, but despite it being a tough time, we actually, my dad and I both laughed really, really hard, and I think sometimes you have to find humor and laugh in the middle of life's toughest challenges.
0: Well, I'm so glad that you've been victorious over this disease on at least five different occasions. And you already had an interest in healthcare and pursuing a career in medicine because of the loss of your mother. You were focused on oncology at the time. Then you've had all this happen to you. And you decided to dedicate the rest of your life to finding a cure for this disease? Or was it even bigger than strictly Castleman's? Tell us what the change was that happened with you.
1: Sure. So it was really this fourth relapse of the disease when I was on the only drug in development for Castleman's and it didn't work. It was the only drug undergoing clinical trial when I decided that I would dedicate my life, as you said, to trying to identify a treatment and maybe a cure for Castleman disease. And it really was just cast on the disease early on. It was realizing that I wouldn't survive. I would never be able to get married and have a family and do the things that I wanted to do in life if I didn't identify a drug that could help me. And I worked really, really hard for about a year and I didn't find anything. No major breakthroughs. We made progress, but no breakthroughs. And and I relapsed. I had my, my fifth flare of this disease. And this was, as you mentioned earlier, right before my fiance and I were due to get married. And I knew that if I didn't find a drug that could save my life and I wasn't going to make it to our wedding date. And so all I could think about is May 24th, 2014, just have to make it to May 24th. But of course, the only way I could is if I found a drug that could keep this awful disease in remission. And so I spent weeks and a great bit of time during that period trying to identify patterns in my data. I eventually did identify a number of signals from within the data that I'd been generating in my lab that suggested that a particular communication line in the immune system called the mTOR pathway was highly activated in my samples. And what was so exciting about finding that mTOR was active is that there's a drug that was developed 30 years ago for kidney transplantation, and it had never been used before for Castleman's, but it targets that particular communication line. And so with no other options, I decided to start testing this drug on myself. And it's now been six years that I've been in remission on this drug and relapse-free.
0: How did you actually go through and find that this drug existed? Yeah, so
1: once I knew that this particular communication line was active in my samples I ran a series of experiments that suggested to me that this communication line was active it didn't mean that blocking it was going to treat my disease because unfortunately in a lot of diseases many things are up and many things are down and, and not all of them actually if you normalize them will, will the patient get better but I found this major abnormality in my samples and what's so cool about this pathway and I, and I talk about it a lot in in my book I know this sounds very nerdy but what What's cool about the pathway is that The name of the drug rapamycin is actually in the name of the pathway. So the thing that targets it, it's called the mammalian target of rapamycin. So when you find out that mTOR is up, the actual name of what targets it, you know, the drug that targets it, it's in the name. And so this drug rapamycin or sirolimus is well established of actually being able to target this thing. And so I knew right away once I found that this thing was up, I knew exactly what drug to go to and started testing it right away.
0: That's great. So when you dedicated your life to this disease and to rare diseases broadly, I understand that you took a look at it and you realized that there was very little funding that was available. I mean, there's no research that was being done. There was no diagnostic criteria for Castleman's disease, no cell lines, no animal models, no registries, (laughs) The biobanks existed, no biomarkers, treatment guidelines, no FDA-approved therapies, and there were no other drugs under development besides this interleukin-6, right? That's right. Uh, So what a terrible thing, not just to have this diagnosis and this condition, but then to find out that there's absolutely nothing that's being done about it. That must have been very demoralizing.
1: You're absolutely right. It was terrifying being in the hospital facing this deadly illness and needing chemotherapy to save my life. But as you said, I think it actually was even scarier to get out of the hospital and to see what the field looked like and to realize that you know it was very unlikely that we would make progress in time to save my life. And and actually, I took a very unusual turn that I think the listeners of your podcast will maybe uh, really appreciate or or recognize why I did it. But I ended up deciding to go to business school in the middle of all of these relapses and all these challenges because as I was conducting laboratory research, I learned pretty quickly that some of the greatest barriers in the way of drugs and research and progress and diagnostic criteria really were operational or managerial problems. They were issues of getting people to work together. The science exists. You know, These drugs are out there. The scientific tools are here. But getting the resources together to be able to utilize them, getting the people together to actually work together, to me seemed like the greatest bottleneck. And so in parallel to the laboratory work that I was doing, I decided to enroll across the street in business school and, and try to gain some of the skills that I thought could help me
0: in fighting this disease. And one of the things I heard you speak about was that you started to look at how research is done in rare diseases. What did you find? Yeah, I found that
1: it was uh, really uh, an inefficient system. The traditional way that rare disease research is done is that rare diseases are almost entirely funded through private philanthropy from those particular rare diseases. Of course, the NIH funds rare disease research, but for any given rare disease, it's unlikely that that particular rare disease will get federal funding. So research occurs by groups like the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, which I run, and other rare disease organizations, raising money and then inviting the best researchers to apply to use it, how those researchers see fit. And then you select the best applicant. And that works really well if you get dozens or hundreds of applicants. But that sort of system does not work well at all if you get Two or three applicants, or one applicant, you know, it's unlikely that the one person who applies for your grant is going to have the best idea in the world for what needs to be done and also happen to have the exact skill set to be the best person in the world to actually do the research. So, with that in mind, and realizing that. Castleman's was described 60 years ago, and there was basically no progress for it. So with that in mind, we decided that we would take a totally different approach to research. So rather than Raising money and inviting researchers to apply to use it how they saw fit. We decided that we would build a community, get the whole network of physicians, researchers, patients together, invite researchers from related diseases, bring them all into this one big community. And then once we built the community, crowdsource that community. So ask the community what research questions need to be answered, and then prioritize from first to last the most important questions that we need to pursue with research. And then the really important piece. Is then go out and recruit the best person in the world to do it. Don't just raise money and invite someone to apply because it's unlikely that the best person in the world will apply. Go out and find that person, proactively recruit them. And we've taken that approach for Castleman Disease and it's been just a total game changer for us. We've made so much progress thanks to this really efficient approach. We call it the collaborative network approach. And actually we partnered with Chan Zuckerberg Initiative about a year ago to try to spread this approach to many, many other rare diseases because we think this is critical to really getting from where we are today with very few drugs for rare diseases to a future where hopefully we can treat many more.
0: So there's between five and 7,000 people who are diagnosed with Castleman's disease. But give us an idea of the overall number of diseases that uh, have been identified. How many of them are classified as rare?
1: Sure, so there are actually 7,000 rare diseases. To be classified as rare in the US, you have to have a prevalence of less than 200,000. And so when you look across diseases, there are about 7,000 that fall into that category. And of those 7,000 diseases, well first off those 7000 diseases they affect 30 million Americans. So one in 10 Americans has a rare disease and of those 7000 rare diseases 95% do not have a single FDA approved therapy. Nothing is available for them. And so as a medical community I think we oftentimes are really proud of the progress we've made and we should be frankly. You know there has been amazing progress in medicine and in science, but unfortunately that progress has not actually always translated to or transitioned into the space of rare disease. And so as a result, nearly all rare diseases don't have a single approved therapy. And, and we hear in the headlines about the rare, rare disease that gets an approved drug and how expensive those drugs can be. But the reality is, is that most, nearly all don't actually have anything.
0: So this is a big problem. You said one in 10 Americans have a rare disease. That's shocking. And it's terrifying that they don't have a resource to be able to find the solutions. Fortunately, you've had the training and the exposure and the access to the labs to be able to test on yourself and to test with peers and have discussions with peers and come up with these solutions. But obviously, a lot of people don't have those sorts of resources or opportunities. So what should people be doing? What should we be thinking about as an industry about how to change the thinking and the process about how to support this 10% of the population?
1: I think the number one opportunity that we have to pursue as a society and as a health system is to go after drugs that are already FDA approved for one condition and ask the question, what other diseases could they potentially be effective in? Across diseases, rare through common, there are many common pathways, many common cell types that are involved across these diseases. So a drug that may have been developed, as I mentioned before, for kidney transplantation 30 years ago could also be effective for Castleman disease. This is actually done quite a bit in oncology, a drug developed for one cancer is almost always considered and tested in many, many other cancers. But unfortunately, outside of cancer, there's a lot less of this what's called drug repurposing. So drug repurposing is taking a drug, you know, had one purpose but trying it in a new way. And I think that for the 95% of these 7,000 rare diseases, we need new drugs. We need to continue to develop new drugs. We need to spur innovation for new drug development. But we also need to look in our rearview mirror and ask what drugs are already FDA approved that might actually be effective treatments tomorrow instead of having to wait, you know,
0: 10 years until there's a new drug or, or in many cases, hundreds of years. We spoke before, you were telling me about a bill that never passed the Senate that would have had some impact on the availability of drugs for people who have rare diseases. Can you explain what that was? That's right. It's called the Open Act. And about four years ago, I worked with a
1: number of really amazing colleagues to advocate for this bill, where basically any drug company that has a drug that's approved for a common disease, if they do the clinical trials to demonstrate it's effective for a rare disease, they would get an extra six months of market exclusivity, which is really a major incentive. And it's the kind of incentive you need, because right now, the real reason that drugs are not being repurposed is because they're really are no incentives in place to make sure that this happens. Once a drug gets approved for one indication, it can be used by doctors for many indications. Clinical trials in rare diseases are expensive, and if it's a really rare disease, it's unlikely that it'll help to recoup the cost. So this bill would make it so that drug companies would have a real incentive to take their drugs that are already approved for one thing and to look for new ways to use it, it actually made it all the way to be a part of the 21st Century Cures Act. And it was uh, ready to be voted on. And unfortunately, about a day before 21st Century Cures Act was voted on, the Open Act was removed from the legislation. And- we believe that that is related to the fact that it was considered to be a pro-pharma bill when really it's a pro-patient bill. Um, You know, this is a a bill that would help to get more Drugs to rare disease patients at good prices because there are drugs that were priced out for common diseases. So it actually would be good for the system as well. Um, but because there was an incentive built in for pharmaceutical companies, there was a sense that politically, from both sides, um, that it, it would not be uh, well received. And unfortunately, it's still on the floor of the Senate.
0: Yeah, I don't even think it's been voted on. Right? They didn't vote it down. They just never voted. That's exactly right. Well. You know, We try not to get real political on this show, but I think this is a human issue, a person issue, a patient issue that I think everyone who's listening can understand and empathize that this is something that needs to be addressed. So I should also mention that you've put together some slides that illustrate some of the conditions, some information about Castleman's specifically, and we're going to talk some more about the impact that your research has done and the foundation you've started has had. So all that's available on our website, you can find a link in the show notes. But if you're listening to this, you can go to digitalhealth.com. Dot com slash rare diseases. Rare diseases, all one word, all lowercase. And that will take you to a page where we're going to have all the information from this conversation. And if you download that, and I'm sure we'll have some links as well, we'll be able to tell you how you can get in touch with your senator and the information that you can pass along to try to resurrect this or at least get a vote on this so that people can be aware and and receive the benefits of this bill if it gets passed into law. So we're certainly happy to do that. For people who are listening who might be working for pharma companies, what are some of the things that they can be doing to try to help address this need for better solutions for rare diseases? Yeah, I think folks
1: that work within pharma, I think, have a real opportunity to work across different divisions within the company to say, what drugs do we have that might be approved for a cancer or if not immune condition that maybe could be used for some other condition based on the way that we know the drug works? Are there other conditions that are rational diseases to go after? And I think one of the challenges is that pharmaceutical companies are often, um, their hands are tied because they're not allowed to market potential alternative uses of their drugs. And so, you know, a company couldn't go out to another disease field and say, you should try my drug in your disease field and see what happens. That's illegal. Um, But what the company can do is internally try to understand, okay, we know this drug works in this way. Is there a rare disease out there where this particular cell type or communication line or protein or gene may be dysregulated in a way that this drug could help? And then connecting individually with leaders from those fields to so, say, you know, is, would there be any interest in studying this? I think this is really, really, really important. And it's easy to focus on the common diseases, especially when you develop a drug for more common diseases. But boy, are there so many patients out there that are just waiting for a drug that could extend their lives, save their lives, improve their lives. And I think pharmaceutical companies have a real opportunity to really ask tough questions around how else can my drug be used? And maybe it does require investments that maybe won't pay off in the long run financially. But I think that there is an opportunity for these sort of investments in rare diseases to pay off in other ways. You know, making these sort of decisions that aren't always fully based on financial incentives, but maybe social good could really pay some serious dividends long-term.
0: Now, drugs are often used off-label, And part of the challenge there is that a lot of that data from the use of those drugs is not tracked. Are there any sort of registries that will help keep track of the real world use of these drugs? You're exactly right. It's estimated that about one-third of all prescriptions
1: are for diseases that the drug was not ever approved for. So, you know, I've been championing throughout this conversation the idea of off-label and drug repurposing. But just as you said, it's actually already happening. There's a lot of drug repurposing and a lot of off-label drug use that's already happening. As I said, about a third of all prescriptions. But the big problem that we're facing is that those data are never captured and evaluated in any sort of a systematic fashion. So for Castleman disease, we have this really extensive natural history registry where every patient around the world that we can find can enroll and we can get all their medical records, we get all their drugs, we can understand what works, what doesn't work. But unfortunately, Castleman's is an anomaly in that sense. Most diseases Don't have a system set up like that to understand what are all the drugs being tried, what's working, what's not working. And so really, we need a lot of rare disease or disease registries that can collect these data, or we need a more systematic approach to basically make it so that medical records and or other databases could be set up to be able to collect these kinds of data on not just what's being given, but what is it being given for, and if it's being given for A disease or indication other than what it was developed for, how well is it actually working? Because if these drugs are being given off-label and they're not working, that's a really important thing to learn so that we stop giving this drug off-label. But if it's being used off-label and it is working, that's also really important so we can make sure that this drug gets to other patients with this condition.
0: You've had a massive impact in this area of study, specifically around Castleman's disease. I know you've helped a lot of people through the work that you've done. I want to talk about the current state of play because it was, we talked about very demoralizing when you discovered that there's no research, no drugs in the pipeline that were going to be able to help you as you were going through your various relapses. But you've been able to address that now through the creation of your own foundation and actually identifying a lot of drugs and treatments that can be used and benefit people. So let's talk about the numbers in terms of the research that you've been able to help get off the ground, as well as the people. So can we start with the numbers first? Sure, so when we first started, there was about $10,000 being
1: raised each year for research into my disease. And and of course, it's very hard to make very much progress when $10,000, one grant a year. I mentioned the approach that we've taken to crowdsource research ideas, recruit the best researchers. And following that approach, that's actually helped us to raise additional and, and more funding than ever before because donors love the idea of being able to support a specific project. It's not just money to quote unquote cure Castle. It's a specific project with a specific researcher that has the highest likelihood of success. So as a result, we've raised about $1.5 million in the last eight years. And from that $1.5 million that we've invested into these high-impact research projects, there have been so many promising findings and breakthroughs, frankly, from that $1.5 million investment that an additional $7 million of external funding has been invested to push those studies forward. So our money was able to serve serve as seed funding, and then that's led to significant investments since then. So about eight and a half million dollars over the last eight years has been directed to Castleman Disease Research, and as a result, the drug that I'm on is now undergoing a clinical trial. This drug that's keeping me alive, I'm literally talking to you today because of it, it's now being used and given to other Castleman's patients. Our initial analyses from the trial and also from this drug being given to other patients demonstrate that the drug probably works in about one-third of patients. So. Though it's life saving for me, unfortunately, it doesn't work for everyone. So we're still continuing to push forward research. And actually, we've recently come across another drug that we think is promising for people like me who don't improve with the only FDA approved therapy and who don't improve with the experimental drug that I'm on.
0: I want to make sure that all the listeners also know we're going to have a lot of links in this episode. They can also go and donate to support your cause here by going to cdcn.org slash donate. So if you want to make a donation to the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, you can do that by going to cdcn.org slash donate and support this cause. But let's talk about some of the people that have been affected by this in a positive way. And unfortunately, some that have not been able to benefit from some of the work and drugs that you've discovered.
1: Sure. And thank you so much for that. You know, we would have never been able to make the progress that we've been able to make without just amazing, generous donors who said, I want to be a part of this journey. I want to be a part of this movement. It's been amazing to see the, I think about the first patient after me that was treated with this drug. She was diagnosed with Castleman disease before her second birthday. She spent three years getting chemotherapy, three years of being unwell, not being able to go to preschool and kindergarten, not being able to do the things that other kids that age should be doing. And when we transitioned her from chemo to sirolimus, she had a really, really positive response. And she's done really, really well. She's now seven years old and she's... riding a bike, she's getting ready to, to go back to school, she's just, you know, back to living the way that a seven-year-old should be living. And, and so that was the second patient to ever be treated with the drug that I'm on. And the third patient actually was another child who was just down the road at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and was very, very, very ill. He also benefited extremely well from sirolimus when he didn't respond to chemotherapy and a number of other drugs. And th- those were, it's, it's hard even to put into words what it was like, because, you know, I started out chasing my cure. That's the name of the book, My Cure. But it really has become so much bigger than chasing my cure. It's really about all of these other patients that have Castleman disease, some that are benefiting from the drug that I'm on, but also the others who have my disease that are not benefiting from this drug. And unfortunately, we have learned of many patients who we were so hopeful this drug that I'm on could help them, and and it has not help them. So we continue to push forward and continue to try to identify drugs so that all patients with Castleman disease can be effectively treated.
0: So I'd be remiss if I didn't express my gratitude to Michelle Longmire at Medible who introduced us and invited me to the session that she had at the JPM where I heard your story from the stage and I got a copy of your book and then was very fortunate to be able to spend the rest of the evening with you getting up to some shenanigans in San Francisco. So uh, thank you to Michelle and her team, her talented team over at Medable for organizing that event and giving us a chance to meet.
1: Oh, I, I'm so appreciative for the opportunity to meet people like you. Thanks to Michelle and Medable, bring all of these just amazing health tech, healthcare leaders together at their event. And just so thankful to Michelle for being one of these people like you, who as soon as she heard about my story and our journey immediately said, what can I do to help? And, and there have been a lot of amazing people that have supported our fight, but, but really there are very few who kind of at hello say, you know, what can I do to help? And Michelle and you are two of those people who right away said, you know, I'm on board, you know, we're chasing our cure. Let's do this. Um, how can I help? And, and that really has been so special and important to me. And I'm excited to keep trying to push these things forward with you, Michelle and, and others from, from that really, really awesome event.
0: It's a lot about the people. I met Michelle, we talked about it offline, but I met Michelle at a coffee break about seven (laughs) years ago at a meeting in Los Angeles, the Center for Body Computing meeting. And uh, she and I have gotten along great ever since and uh, bring more people into your life and then uh, work to try to serve them and and help magnify their work and their voice. So thanks to Michelle and your whole team for putting together the opportunity for us to meet. Yeah. Oh, I'm so thankful. I'm so Honored to speak with you, David, and share your story with the audience. It's such an amazing journey that you've been on. I'm sure your mother would be very proud. I'm sure your father still is. And I was just looking at the bookmark that uh, has this information about the CDCN donation Link, and we're going to make a donation to that organization as well. We wish you such great success. We hope all the listeners who are tuning in will make a donation as well. Uh, Really applaud the success that you've had for yourself, but also for the people that you've touched and the change that you're bringing about around how people are actually discovering and repurposing drugs that can help these rare diseases. It's such an important thing and it doesn't get enough attention. So, we're really pleased to have you on here in advance of the Rare Diseases Day on February 29th or in other years, February 28th, so that we can recognize the achievement and the journey that a lot of people are on in our communities. You've learned a lot of, about this. You've learned a lot about life. You talked earlier about May 24th, 2014 being such an important day. That's your anniversary. Right. Uh, you made it to May 24th of <laughs> 2014 and beyond. Uh, you're now a father. I'm sure that's taught you a lot of life lessons as well. Are there some key lessons that you would want to share with the audience that go beyond some of the science and industry discussion we've had already? Sure. So,
1: um, You're exactly right. Going through all of the ups and downs that I've gone through and almost dying five times really did teach me so much about life and about living, uh, lessons that um, I didn't know before I got sick and lessons that I I really do want to share with the world, which again is is really one of the main reasons why I I wrote this book is so that I could share these lessons with other people. I feel like I have this obligation. So I mentioned earlier um, that I had my last rights read to me in 2010, and I've really considered that moment to be the start of my overtime. And of course, in overtime, every second counts. And you have to make the most of every second because a missed play, a dropped pass, ends the game. And so I've really lived this, this sense of overtime and realized that we actually... We're all in overtime. We really all need to live with this sense of overtime. Another key lesson that I really want to share is is about reflecting on our hopes and our prayers, our wishes, and trying to understand what can we do? What sort of action can we take to get those hopes and prayers and wishes closer to reality? Really everything changed for me when I reflected on what I was hoping for and I started turning those hopes into action. Another one is that I learned this from my mom when she was battling cancer, was that oftentimes during difficult times, we're we're instructed to look for silver linings. What's something positive that we can find from this really difficult experience? But what my mom taught me was actually that we shouldn't just look for silver linings. We actually should Create silver linings whenever possible. So, in the midst of really tough times, we should think what can I do today that could actually create something positive for someone that I love? What can I do tomorrow that could actually make a difference against the disease that I'm battling for someone else? You know, how can we not just find silver linings and say, oh, this actually is better because of it, but what can we do to actually create silver linings? And really, the last one that I want to highlight today is about how it really. It really takes an army to do the things that we've done. If this was me fighting on my own, we would have made probably one one thousandth of a percentage of the progress that we've made. But because of amazing people like you, Dan, who, who are saying, I want to get behind what you're doing. I want to raise awareness for Castleman's and, and, and the fight against rare disease. I, I want to get behind the organization of this fight because of people like you and, and hopefully listeners on the show that want to be a part of this. We've made so much progress and we've made progress against Castleman disease but importantly as we've discussed throughout the show we've spent a lot of time thinking about how can we spread this approach and this progress to many other rare diseases which is why we're partnering with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to spread our approach to other rare diseases. It's why we're advocating for bills that will incentivize drug repurposing. And, and it's why you know we're trying our best to raise awareness about the work that we're doing. So thanks so much for having me on today. And I love the idea that we can share these lessons with your listeners and, and love the idea that your listeners will be a part of this army that fighting Castleman's, fighting rare disease, and spreading the word about Chasing My Cure.
0: David, so many important lessons that you've just shared with us. Thank you so much for spending. You talked about uh, the importance of each second and you've spent about 2000 seconds with (laughs) us. So thank you so much for spending the time with us and sharing your experience as a medic, as a professor, as a, a patient, as a person, a father, a husband, so many different roles that you have and as a pioneer in this area around rare diseases. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Definitely going to encourage everyone to go to that website, make a donation, buy the book, Chasing My Cure. We'll have a link to that on the website. And do download the document that David and I have put together uh, that includes a lot of the information from his presentation at Exponential Medicine, but also importantly, it's going to have the links and the information there about how you can get involved and write to your senators and get involved with the organizations that will help to bring this bill into Senate to get a vote and hopefully allow patients to have better access to drugs that can help them as they follow their journey. So David, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks so much for having me on. Look forward to seeing you soon too. This has been another episode of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission-Based Media. Be sure to grab the show notes for this episode at digitalhealthtoday.com slash 99, and also download the PDF to find out how you can help win the fight against rare diseases. Audio engineering was by Ivan Uvrich. I'm Dan Kendall, and I've been your host. You can find all our episodes on digitalhealthtoday.com, as well as our second home on the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time, keep on innovating.